Welcome to the 55th episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is, What Are Top Advisors Doing Differently? Featuring Matt Oxley of the Oxley Institute. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, and on advisorhub.com as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you're new to the series, I encourage you to visit diamond-consultants.com slash independence101 for the top five episodes that will help you get up to speed on the basics of the independent space, plus links to other episodes you may have missed. And if you're listening to the series on the Apple Podcast app, be sure to leave a star rating and review. It serves as a guide to us, as well as your colleagues in the wealth management industry who may be searching for valuable content to tune into. A while back, I wrote a piece called The Billion Dollar Mindset, What Drives Top Advisors? It was one of the most popular articles on our Perspectives blog, and no surprise, because understanding how the most successful advisors rise to the top is undoubtedly a hot topic for anyone looking to drive themselves toward greater success. Certainly, looking from the sidelines, you're probably wondering, how did they do it? For example, in our last episode, I spoke with Forbes top advisor Paul Pagnotto of Pagnotto Carp, an RIA firm based in Reston, Virginia, that he and fellow Merrill Breakaway David Carp formed after leaving Hightower Advisors, a business they ultimately grew from a billion to $4 billion in just eight short years. And consider this. Prior to joining Merrill, Paul was a microbiologist with NASA. Or how about my guest on episode 42, Morgan Stanley breakaway Margaret Deccan. She is the founding partner of Kansas City-based Six Meridian, an RIA that manages over $2.5 billion in assets. Or Bill Loftus, ex-Merrill advisor, who is now the founding partner of Coastal Bridge Advisors, who shared on episode 23 how his firm grew from $400 million to over $2.4 billion under management in just a decade. In each case, and many more, they stress the importance of their team and having a strong plan for growth. And for sure, they're team builders and leaders who have clear vision that guide their way forward. Certainly, They have tremendous business development skills and a natural connected network. But these are obvious things. It's really much more than that. Many of the top advisors I've had the honor of speaking with over the years share some common qualities and traits that guide their every move. So to explore this further, I've asked Matt Oxley, founder of the Oxley Institute, to join me on today's show. Matt has keen insight on the topic of what drives top advisors His firm specializes in coaching and training those who are looking to build their wealth management practices to new heights. Plus, what's unique about Matt and his team is that they've been digging into the mindset of elite advisors through years of research on their businesses and relationships with their affluent clients. And they use that data as the foundation for the services they provide to advisors. So let's get right to it. Matt, thank you so much for being here with me today. Welcome to the show. Happy to be here. I want to start at the top. Tell us, if you would, a little bit about your background. 
Gosh, I mean, 40 some odd years ago, I was a, a counselor for emotionally disturbed boys outside of New York City in a facility called Children's Village in Dobbs Ferry, New York. And I had the dubious distinction of being the scoutmaster of the only emotionally disturbed Boy Scout troop in the state of New York at the time. And from there, I got uh, certified in doing clinical hypnotherapy. But at the same time, it wasn't my calling to be working with these emotionally disturbed kids. So I was supposed to be a lawyer. My mother's side of the family were all attorneys. I didn't want to be a lawyer. So I took an $8,000 loan out, went up to Massachusetts, Worcester, hung out a shingle and started a counseling consulting practice, but went and got an MBA in marketing at night to market my practice. And it was that MBA in marketing where part of my marketing efforts were to promote myself for minimal expenses. I didn't have hardly any money. I was 25 years old. And I put a one sheet together on myself with the background in clinical hypnotherapy, the emotionally disturbed boys, the Boy Scout troop, uh, centered around to civic organizations, the media. And I was asked to speak everywhere. I was on live television shows in Boston. I was on radio interviews. I was speaking to the Worcester Chamber of Commerce. And that is what led my first stockbroker. They used to call them stockbrokers back in those days. And then followed by an insurance agent to come to me so they could be, quote unquote, hypnotized so they could sell better. And from there, and I'll tell you this quick story. The first one who came in and I walked out to greet him and I was charging like $75 a person at the time and I needed every dime. And he came in and his first question when he looked at me was, how old are you? And I was maybe three or four months from working with these kids. And I looked at him and I said, you know, what's it to you? And he said, you look old enough to be my son. And I said, who, whose problem is that? And then he proceeded just to blurt out that he was a stockbroker. And yeah. he'd been doing it for 20 years, knew everything there is to know, been trained by Dale Carnegie, been trained by uh, Xerox Sales. And finally, when he stopped, I looked at him rather incredulously. And I said, why are you here? And he said, well, I was hoping you could hypnotize me to sell. And I started laughing. I said, you just told me you know everything there is to know about selling. You know, I'm not a stockbroker. And then he confessed that he knew it was in his head. He wasn't making near the money he was capable of making. And, you know, he heard me speak, obviously, on the radio because he didn't know I was that young. So I took him in the back room where I sit down. And anybody goes in the back room back then, it was $75. I took him in the back room, sat him in the chair, and I, I was very curious. So I had a legal pad and I asked him, so if you did everything you told me you know how to do consistently, what would it do to your income? And he responded immediately. I double my income. And I never heard of anybody who could double their income at that time by just doing what they already knew how to do and weren't doing it. So then I asked him, okay, give me a template. We used to use this with the kids, templates of a good day versus a bad, temp, good behavior versus bad behavior. So give me a template of your good day that you're going to have to do consistently. And he thought for a moment and came up with six things he had to do. And I can't remember them all, but there were things like plan his day in advance, make 25 outgoing sales, call, you know, blah, blah, blah. I wrote him down and I repeated him back to him and he used a profanity. And when I repeated him back, I'm a blank and wise guy, he called me. And I looked at him and I said, well, I might be a blank and wise guy, but you're a blank and idiot because if these are only these six activities you need to do to double your income and you're not doing it, you're an idiot. And I don't hypnotize idiots. And it sat him back in his chair. And then I just off the top of my head, told him about my MBA thesis and I'd use him for my MBA thesis. If he had the guts to do these activities, he can come back in a week and I'd check up on him and only charge him $10. And for whatever reason, he agreed to do it. 
And that was the beginning. And you know, I saw him three times. And by the last time he came in, he was asking me, you know, how he should dress. And I'd only been wearing a suit for three or four months at that time. So it was just bizarre. And word got around, and by the end of the first year, I had seen 14 of these stockbroker and insurance agents. And I remember saying to myself, are they all like this? They all kind of know what to do, but they aren't doing it and could make significantly more money. So I wrote my thesis around it, and then I rewrote my thesis and sent it out to the publications at the time, and the rest is history. You know, they asked me to write columns and this, that, and the other. And So quite a leap then to the Oxley Institute. So how and when was it formed? What was the niche you were looking to fill? Well, one of these editors who talked me into writing a column also talked me into writing my first book, Winning the Inner Game of Selling. And from there, I was propelled to go out and speak. And I wanted to be more than just a one-trick pony. So we started doing research. I wanted to know what advisors were thinking, well, stockbrokers back then and insurance agents, but now we call them advisors were thinking. And I wanted to know what their clients were thinking. And we started, gosh, 30 years ago, doing these parallel research projects. The client, you know, what are they looking for in a professional relationship? What marketing do they respond favorably to? And we call now the advisors. And that's created a critical path for us, you know, so the niche was in the financial world to really understand the client and what they're looking for in a relationship and to really understand the ins and outs of the advisors. And that led to teams and the best of the best, which we call elite advisors. And how has the notion of the stockbroker 30 years ago that sold stocks and learning to sell better sounded like it was the task at hand? But if we fast forward to today, we don't call them stockbrokers. They're financial advisors, and they're much less about selling, even though underneath they need to be decent salespeople, but much more consultative. So how has that changed the approach you use with them? Well, the approach has changed, really. It involves sales tactics. It involves, really, the mindset. And the mindset is what's critical. This game of success in life is one on a seven-inch playing field right between the ears. And specifically, when it comes to anybody in the sales world. And, you know, yeah, they're more consultative right now, financial advisors, but they need refined sales skills more so now than ever before. They have to be seamless in their sales skills. They can't come across salesy, but yet they need to do the activity. And that leads to opportunities where they can present themselves professionally, i.e. sell themselves. Yeah. So I want to come back to the notion of selling and how you coach people on that. But tell us what the Oxley Institute is for those unfamiliar and who your typical clients are. Uh, the Oxley Institute is basically a research coaching firm, and we do parallel research projects every year. Like I said, we've been doing it now for going on 30 years uh, researching now. It's, it, we research affluent clients, and we research financial professionals, and that creates the critical path that we coach to and that we write about. So we do the research. From that research, we create a critical path all about how to acquire, you know, sell your services to today's affluent and how to service them and develop loyal affluent relationships. So in a nutshell, that's what we do. And our typical clients are financial professionals from the highest end, you know, billion dollar wealth management teams to we have younger advisors who are just getting started to a regular financial advisor who really wants to step it up. 
One of the things, the field of coaching has gotten crowded and competitive. So how does Oxley Institute differentiate itself? How is the work that you do as a coach different than many other coaches out there? It's exactly what I just described, because we've been doing this research for years, and this critical path isn't just me speaking off the top of my head. We have empirical data. We know that the affluent, for instance, don't, don't like being asked for a referral. We know, for instance, if you expand the relationship and you have an emotional connection with your affluent client, in addition to, to providing high-end, good professional service that you have three times the likelihood of penetrating their sphere of influence and bringing on new relationships from in their spheres of influence as a result. We know that they don't like going to public seminars, but we also know the number one event they will attend is a small little intimate social event. Yeah. That creates a critical path. And we know asking for it to be personally introduced, you know, we have years of data that show if I ask you, Mindy, for a referral, you're going to say, well, I don't really know anybody offhand, but yeah, I'll keep that in mind. Same baseline. We're your go-to financial advisor. We're overseeing the totality of your family's financial affairs, and you trust and respect us. If I ask you for a referral, you're uncomfortable. If I ask you, could you introduce me to your colleague, Carolyn? we have an 80% likelihood that you're going to personally introduce me. Interesting. It's probably a pretty easy answer, but why should an advisor use a coach? And I guess said another way, what are some of the key things a coach can do for an advisor? Well, I mean, in our world, what we do is we create this critical path. So there's really two aspects of it. First, it's a mindset we got, you got to get the right mindset. You got to be willing to go outside of your comfort zone. Everybody thinks they're goal focused, but you're not goal focused if you're not willing to systematically go outside of your comfort zone and have that discipline to do activities that need to be done. You know, whether you fully understand them or you're comfortable with them or not. And the other thing is doing the right activities because this, as you know, Mindy, this industry, there's so much going on. It's so easy to get off that critical path. Most advisors don't even have a critical path. They listen to somebody coming in their office with an outlier kind of approach of marketing and they jump to it. Oh, that sounds good. And this is the average coaching client brings in on an annual basis between 19 and $20 million with 21 new households. You compare that to the industry average. 94% will tell you and tell us they've significantly improved their pipeline. And I would ask, if you ask a typical advisor what's in their pipeline, they might not even be able to tell you. What's the secret sauce? What are a couple of the key things you talk about this critical path that an advisor who is successfully coached, whether it be by Oxley Institute or otherwise, that an advisor does that will ensure more referrals and more growth? Well, I mean, referrals, we look at referrals, you know, it's not asking for referrals, it's unsolicited referrals, it's word of mouth influence. So the two things that the baseline of these advisors, these elite advisors is first and foremost, they're outstanding professionals. And by the way, we remind advisors all the time, this is not a value proposition that you're an outstanding professional. The affluent expect you to be an outstanding professional. They expect their piano teacher is the best piano teacher in town. The hockey coach is the best hockey coach in town or whatever it is. They don't want to average anything. So 
being very good at what you do is step number one, very first-class professional. Step number two is expanding that relationship to develop an emotional connection with the client. And when you develop an emotional connection, again, we have over a decade of research that says when you expand this relationship, not only do you get more unsolicited referrals, but the clients are less price sensitive, they become very loyal, and they become actually your advocates. They're sort of your your unofficial marketing team because they are going to help you get in front of people who they know, like, and want serviced well. Can you give us an example, Matt, of say a couple of elite advisors you coach or have coached or your firm has coached about what coaching has done, how following this critical path, how expanding the relationships to include emotional connection, how that has translated into greater success. For sure. These elite advisors, you know, the ones that we've coached, they're already very successful. And they've been successful because they've been very ambitious and they've had discipline. So when cold calling was in, you know, in vogue, they were animal cold callers. They were typically the early adopters of seminars. So here's an example of an advisor that had made wealth for himself but didn't really understand how to get the wealth of the people he was now circulating with. He didn't understand how to sell his services to the affluent. So he heard me speak at one of their top conferences. He happened to be there, one of the top five producers in the firm. And this is going back years. And only way I agreed to work with him is I said, are you going to do what I ask you to do? And he said, yes. And he did. And so, for instance, the game changer for him was when, and I, you know, you have to source names. You can't buy a list. You know, you have to talk to your clients and find out who they're doing what with. So he finds out one of his clients is on a board and he simply asked his client, you know, in reporting to me, he was supposed to do this. Who else was on the board? He listed a few people and one of them was this very powerful, wealthy person who was his college roommate and they were best of friends. So the advisor takes note of this and then finds out that they're having a fundraiser relative to this board. So he calls his client and says, hey, are you going to this fundraiser? Yes. Is Mr. Big going to be at this fundraiser? I'm sure he is. He's on the board. And it was a husband-wife type of thing. So he goes to this and he had two objectives, you know, going to this fundraiser. They're bringing their spouses. First objective was to connect with Mr. and Mrs. Big. And he did that. I mean, he's going to get introduced. He asked his client, will you introduce me? Sure, I'll introduce you to him. Connect. And his second objective was to suggest a social interaction with the three couples subsequent to this event, this fundraiser. And he was successful on both fronts. What happened is about seven months later, as he continued to sort of develop a relationship through his wealthy client to this very powerful, wealthy Mr. and Mrs. Big, he got him as a client. And then what he found out was they had fired another top advisor to hire this advisor. And he was a little concerned about this because this top advisor was very prominent in his city. And so I I said, you just got to find out what happened. I mean, you really got to ask the why questions. And he found out that they fired him because Mrs. Big never really liked the guy. And so there are your marching orders, the advisor I'm coaching. You have to develop a relationship with Mrs. Big. 
And he did that. He got invited to their big holiday party. He helped her with her personal fundraiser. And as he was saying, and the whole idea, if you, if you play your cards right, you know, that's going to, he was bringing in, you know, new assets per year, maybe about 50 million at the time. You know, this year, year to date, he has about 270 million new assets in year to date. And one relationship and he was professional enough, smart enough. And, you know, and he went from being sort of a CFA nerd to being one who goes out there and gets social and doesn't talk about himself and how good he is. He develops those relationships. And when it's time, so he basically learned to sell seamlessly. Yeah. Except, you know, it, it doesn't sound like selling. But it is selling. But it doesn't sound or feel like selling. And what you're talking about is really nurturing relationships that takes time, that takes finesse, that takes emotional intelligence, that takes hearing what people are not saying, reading by signs, things that you'd think are sort of more instinctive, but it sounds like a lot of what you do is coaching people on how to do what may be less instinctive for them. Well, less instinctive, you're right, but also there's a lot of advisors out there who'll come up to us and say, I have all these great relationships, but I don't know how to get their business. I don't know how to sell my services without coming across cheesy. So as a result, I just had rather have them as friends. And that basically they have not gone out of their comfort zone because for this advisor in getting all these clients that now have been as a result of, let's say, Mr. and Mrs. Big and these spheres of influence, you know, they just tend to grow and multiply is like connecting the dots. I mean, you got to go out of your comfort zone when you when you're putting that professional cap on and having that business discussion and asking for their business. And yet you're right. It's about stepping out of your comfort zone. But I find for me, because I, like you, interact with elite advisors. For me, it's about being real. I find it's less about selling them and more about being present and authentic and human and connecting on an honest personal relationship level as opposed to trying to sell them on anything, even though at the end of the day, it's a sales function, right? Yeah, you're exactly right. My point is, in sales gets a bad word. It's a bad rap. And in sales is a very honorable profession if your skills are seamless. And that's what we coach to. How do you develop seamless sales skills? So everything you do, you do, we use a phrase called strategic intent. You have a game plan. And, but you got to be real. You got to be sincere. It's just what you said. switch gears for a second to where advisors practice, because as you know, we've seen this enormous shift or trend where more of these elite advisors are leaving the traditional brokerage firms and going independent. And I know you coach advisors across the spectrum. So wondering, as you see advisors at big brokerage firms, at regional firms, at independent broker dealers, at banks, at independents, RIAs, et cetera, what are your thoughts about where an advisor practices? And let's just look at being an employee versus being independent. Do you think that that has anything to do with how successful they are? That's a great question. And we get that question a lot. And it's absolutely has no relevance because when we really break down the elite advisors from our research, I mean, they have more in common with one another, you know, than they do with the majority of other advisors in their respective 
broker, whether they're at a warehouse, whether they're an RIA, or whether they're an independent, or whether they're at a small firm. They have more in common with each other than they do with the majority of advisors in their respective, you know, BDs. And they capitalize on what they have. They take full advantage of what they can do. And they know there's more restrictions in the major firms and they they get that. But it's that ambition. It's the discipline. It's capitalizing on what they have right in front of them. All those intangibles they have, whereas if wirehouses had a lock on all this, nobody would be going to an RIA. If RIA had a lock on this, everybody would be going out to become an RIA. Who'd want to work for a firm? So when it comes down to your question, one's not better than the other. It's a personal preference. Meaning that an advisor can be ultimately successful and be elite no matter where he is, whether he is independent or at a wirehouse firm. It has more to do with how he chooses to live his business life and how skilled he is at getting it done. And how much, yeah, how he, how he or she works on refining their skills. And you're exactly right. Yeah. I want to pivot to what I, I'd really like to make the focus of this episode today. And I wrote a piece a while back called The Billion Dollar Mindset. And I wrote about a dozen or so habits of the most highly successful advisors. You call them the elite advisors. And whether someone is already an elite advisor and wants to be more elite, or somebody is at 300 million and wants to get to a billion, so aspirationally get there. I'd love to focus on your perspective or spend some time unpacking your perspective on what really differentiates the best of the best. So what I thought I'd do is share some of the traits that we see that I see anecdotally from working with some of the top advisors in the industry. And I'd love to hear your perspective as well. Would that be okay? Sure. Sure. So the first one is I think that they are generally forward thinking and always possess a growth mindset with a willingness to be innovative. I totally agree. And forward thinking means they're open-minded. They're early adopters. They have long-range vision. And their growth mindset is very much a component of that long-range vision. They think big and they know, you know, they have to be in it. They have to innovate. That's part of being an early adopter. And don't you think that Every advisor has a growth mindset. Said another way, doesn't everyone want to grow? What's the difference then between an elite advisor's growth mindset and an average advisor's growth mindset? The elite advisor's growth mindset is a mental compulsion. It's totally embedded in their DNA. You don't have to help them think big. You don't have to remind them they need to get into the office early. It's the discipline linked with that real compulsive mindset. And it's a big misnomer in this industry. Everybody's goal focus. That's a misnomer. That's a myth. This industry is plagued by complacency. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I think that that's absolutely right. Second one. They tend to be big picture focused because they know that success is about being progressive and not stationary. And I think what I'd add to that is they tend to be somewhat creative. And I don't mean that they're artists or musicians, but they're creative about saying, what can I do within the confines of what's in front of me to better serve this client or grow this business or prospect more or whatever it is? 
I couldn't agree with you more. And that's, you know, back to when you asked that question, you know, is there a difference between an elite advisor at a wirehouse versus independent versus RIA? It goes right to that. They're big picture focused and they're progressive, not stationary. And they're capitalizing on what they have at their disposal right then and bringing in what else they need. They're not waiting for it to be given to them. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Next, they're flexible and open to change and embrace healthy risks. Well, that's what I've been talking about. I agree completely. This comfort zone thing is a big deal. The, you know, the general population of advisors does not expand their comfort zone. They only do what is comfort zone. You know, I, I'll be giving a, a keynote speech somewhere and an advisors will come up to me afterwards. I like that speech. It's very good. But and don't you love it when they say, but, you know, mm. I'm just not really comfortable asking my top clients to, to be introduced for an introduction. And my response is always, I'm not concerned about your comfort. I'm talking about you uh, talking about the artist selling to the affluent. I'm talking about client acquisition. If you want more affluent clients, you better forget about your comfort. And that's the healthy risk. Go outside of your comfort zone. With respect to risk, you made the bold statement that an, an elite advisor or a successful advisor who's an outstanding professional can be an outstanding professional no matter where he or she chooses to practice. But one of the things that's inherent, I think, in being an advisor at, the, at a big bank-owned brokerage firm is that there's not a whole lot of coloring outside of the lines that can go on, that they're largely in a box, a lot of limitations, that compliance you know, runs the firm and compliance is definitely not encouraging them to take any sort of risks, healthy or otherwise. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, they know how to manipulate their firm, their do's and don'ts. I've never seen an elite team, you know, a billion dollar team at a major firm that didn't get basically what they want. Exceptions are made. Yeah. They ask, they push the envelope. Yeah, I think that's right. Next, they're highly self-confident and self-motivated, trusting in their own potential and growth trajectory. And I think it's the self-trust that is probably most impactful. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, it's the self-trust. I think that trust is they're, they're really self-motivated, self-confident. They're thinking big. And, you know, they still deal with that devilish voice of doubt. You know, I don't know if I can pull this off, but they do it anyway. And their trust and confidence grows from doing the activities consistently that they know they should be doing linked to their ambitious goal. Right. And then I'd say they're open-minded and never let their thinking become insular. And I think that's a huge one. They're always looking to surround themselves with those who can expand their perspective. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. It's the insular advisor who refuses to change. Not only are they open-minded, but, but they're willing to recognize, you know, weaknesses. You know, we've done uh, assessments, benchmarking assessments of advisors for years. And what's interesting is the, the more elite and successful the advisor, the more performance gaps they come up with, areas they need to work on to improve, where the general population of advisor rationalizes that they don't need any work on this. They don't, have as, they don't have as many performance gaps. Yeah, I think that's spot on. The elite advisors are willing to be self-aware, self-honest, and say, look, these are where my weaknesses are, and either work hard to fill in the gap 
or to hire into the gap. So I'm good exactly. at X, I'm not good at Y. Let me add somebody to my team that can that can help with that. But I think that's a great one. Next, they embrace the fiduciary mindset wholeheartedly, always putting their clients' interests first. And what I mean by that is whether they're held to a suitability standard at a brokerage firm or they're a fee-only RIA and have no FINRA oversight, regardless, they're all about being a fiduciary. Oh, not only are they only about being a fiduciary, they're all expanding that relationship to really have that emotional connection. So they oversee their clients' financial, family's financial affairs. They know what their children are doing. And everything they do is to enhance that client relationship, both on a professional level and on a personal level. So I couldn't agree with you more. But let me ask you a question about that. I've never met an advisor that would ever at least admit to the fact that they don't put their clients' interests first. And there's been a lot of talk about can an advisor in a brokerage firm be a true fiduciary? And a lot of the guests I've had on here talking about the independent space talk about how it's impossible to act as a true fiduciary in a world where it's not complete open architecture and there are limitations. So I guess... A couple of questions. What do you think about that? But also, how do you think a client understands or get or really experiences someone as a fiduciary or not? How do the clients know the difference? I don't think the clients understand the concept. I mean, they, that, that term is thrown around rather loosely as well. And it's all back to that what you said about trust, you know, once the clients trust an advisor and yet technically an advisor at a wirehouse cannot be the fiduciary technically, but we all as human beings, we make our decisions on emotion and we support them with logic. So by them having their client's best interests at heart, what they do is protect their client's from an initiative their firm might be pushing that they don't think is fit relevant or or proper for their clients. And they'll let the client know. They protect them from their own firm. Can a client sense that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, they can sense it. But these elite advisors also remind their clients that they protect their clients from themselves. Right. The more I'm listening to you, the, the word that keeps coming to mind is it's all about a relationship. It's not looking at a client as a dollar sign. It's looking at a client as a relationship where the advisor is a trusted guide and clients pick that up. They sense that. They know when they can trust someone. You're so right. And that word relationship has been thrown around like M&Ms over the past 20 years, just like now fiduciaries being thrown around like, you know, 50 cent pieces. It's thrown around rather casually. And yet at the same time, when we ask, we do research on this and we have years of it that we ask the, the affluent clients about the relationship with their financial advisor and about 28% will say they have this expanded relationship, the emotional connection and the professional connection. We ask advisors that same question and about, you know, 70, 74, 75% say they have this expanded relationship. So it's like, okay, you know, who's on first here? Who's right? And how does an advisor balance? That's an interesting point. How does an advisor who wants to have an expanded relationship balance the fact that they may not be able to charge for certain services? 
I mean, that's just part of what they have to do. Sure, you have to figure out what revenue you're generating per client. And there's certain services that you're going to be doing, advising the client to do A, B, and C that's in their best interest. There's certain activities. We have advisors who give pushback. Our research has shown that if you have a social lunch with an affluent client, it's the number one activity that stimulates word of mouth influence that leads to a new million dollar plus client coming your way. Yet we have advisors say, well, who's going to pay for the lunch? My firm won't pick up the tab for the lunch. I mean, it's ludicrous. Here's an advisor who's the top 25 in his firm out of about 15 or 16,000 advisors, hires one of our coaches, is giving one of our coaches grief on the first coaching call because he's got three daughters, he lives in Texas, he's got all his clients' money, he makes a ton of money, and he's not going to bother socializing with his clients for this emotional connection. He's not giving up his evenings or his weekends. And so our coach simply asked him, do you eat lunch? And he said, yeah. He said, I'll make a deal with you. You have one social lunch with a top client a week. That's all I'm going to hold you accountable for. And he agreed to do it. Now, this came to me from this advisor at one of our coaching retreats. So he came up and confessed his sins. He said, yeah, I was a real jerk to your coach when he first started off. And it took me a month of having these, you know, he had four lunches before the penny dropped that he didn't have all their money and that this was really a productive thing to do because they were suggesting people that he needed to meet who they can introduce him to. He said his business grew 30%. That year. Now, he attributed it all to having one social lunch a week. I'm sure there was more to it. But my point being, this is not really as complicated as advisors tend to make it if they're willing to do. It's about the relationship for sure. My last point, they are never fully satisfied with the status quo because they're always looking to do more and do better for clients, their team and their business overall. Well, yeah, and I put this down is they're very competitive. They're always looking to improve. They want to be the best. And it's just something that is ingrained in them. And they want to be in the Forbes list. They want to be rank A, B, and C. You name it. They're competitive. And that means they're doing better for their clients. When they do better for their clients, they get more introductions. They penetrate further in the spheres of influence, et cetera, et cetera. Totally agree. So what did I miss? You didn't really miss anything. Those are excellent. I mean, what we've done, Mindy, is we took all the traits that these elite advisors have and and broke them down into four key criteria that set them apart. And these are criteria any advisor can look in the mirror and sort of check the box or if they're honest with self, say, I need to work on this. And number one is all these elite advisors are extremely ambitious. And that's sort of what you've been saying and what we've just been talking about there. You know, you don't have to help them think big. The second, though, is that their discipline linked to their ambition. Doesn't mean they're a triathlete, is that their discipline, they are going to do what they need to do, those activities. And they're going to do those activities despite that little devilish voice of doubt whispering in their ear saying it's not going to work or why are you going to do this? They do it anyway. The third criteria, and this is probably the fork in the road that that really separates advisors, is they're self-aware, they're self-critical. For instance, that advisor who got Mr. and Mrs. Big, you know, from that I, I talked about earlier, that advisor was self-critical. And basically his, his commentary to me is, you can turn me into one of the biggest rainmakers because I don't know how to sell in the world of the affluent and you can train me and I'm going to do it. 
but self-aware. Instead of somebody saying, hey, I live with wealth, you can't sell our services in these wealthy circles. You know, you can't, you know, you're not, and it's not kosher to be selling at the club. So they're self-aware. And then the, finally, once they're self-aware and they recognize a weakness, as you were saying, they either, you know, delegate it, hire out, or they work to personally correct a performance-specific weakness. And by the way, what we've seen with elite advisors, none of them are delegating the rainmaking. They have to be the primary rainmaker. And by being the primary rainmaker, they can mentor and train a rainmaker. But we, so many, we see so many advisors trying to hire you know, a younger advisor to be their rainmaker. Well, they just sit back and say, bring them to me. I'll close them. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. It definitely doesn't work that way. I know that even from my own business, for sure. And one of the things you and I talked about offline, Matt, was an emotional connection. And you've mentioned it a couple times here that elite advisors develop an emotional connection, a deep relationship with clients. And I think that's actually a really smart insight because I think that that is the difference maker. But I'm wondering how technology and a world that's become more technologically connected, how that's impacted an advisor's role in developing this emotional connection. Well, what it's done, technology has made it even more important. In fact, I just wrote a piece about this, that it's sort of how can financial advisors take advantage of these digitally disruptive times, you know, the robo-advisor, the high-tech world. And there's two things. Number one, they have to master the art of emotional connectivity because the more we're in our digital world, the more we're involved with technology, the more we crave personal interaction. So our clients don't become advocates because we have better technology than our competitor. Everybody's claiming they have the best technology. But on the other hand, these elite advisors really are early adapters of this technology. And they don't have to be the experts themselves. They hire people to be the experts. Yeah. And how do you see technology impacting advisor performance now and in the future? I see technology as being a tool. You know, the general population of advisors, they need to get their act together because technology is going to be a direct competitor for clients. The elite advisors, not so. You know, we can get into a discussion on fintech, but we have, I mean, technology is growing as we speak. You know, we're in a digital world right now and things change in a nanosecond. But what the elite advisors are doing, they're understanding how to use this technology, what technology is relevant to their clients, which technology isn't relevant to their clients, you know, helping their clients use technology that is relevant. So technology becomes a tool and it doesn't mean you have to use all the technology that's out there. But you need to understand and you need to have talking points because your clients are going to ask you about different aspects of this technology. And when you have that emotional connection, they listen to you, they respect your opinion, and they know you're knowledgeable. And they're not always going to do what you suggest, but the majority of the time they will. And that if you've got the emotional connection, you'll never be totally replaced by a robo. No, you never will. Never will. Now, they're going to come armed with a lot of information from social media, but, you know, I mean, facts and figures, but that's not knowledge. If somebody in your family comes down with a serious illness, everybody's Google searching that illness. But then what are you looking for? You're looking for the best physician who has an expertise directed toward that illness. For sure. Yep. I want to shift gears for a second. Tell me what's most on your mind about the wealth management space overall. 
I guess what's most on my mind is what we're talking about right here. Are advisors really being developed, prepared to handle this digital disruptive world that we're in? You know, the best of the best, yes. But how are we taking younger advisors and apprenticing them into this so they are going to be geared to handle this new world instead of just out there, you know, trying to sell whatever financial product they can sell initially to get started. So I think it's really complex because the industry is looking at a barbell, barbell. You know, you have on one end, you have a lot of these really billion dollar high end, very professional wealth management teams, but they're not going to be around forever. And we see here succession planning within these teams needs to be a top, top priority. And they need to be getting the children of these wealthy clients on board as clients. And our data is very clear on this. I mean, some, you know, 20 some odd percent, low 20s have even showed any interest in working with the children of their clients. So I'm giving you a long answer, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Actually, you took the words right out of my mouth because my next question was going to be, what do you think is the greatest threat or concern? And you addressed it, the notion of succession planning. So what do you think are the top things that, whether it be an elite advisor or otherwise, an advisor that is nearing the end of his or her career that, say, has less than 10 years left to go and hasn't really begun to address succession planning and developing a bench and whatnot, what can they do about that? They should take action immediately. What they need to do is really put their feelers out for a younger advisor who can become associated with them or part of their team that they can then have five years, 10 years or whatever that time period is and work them into their client. Instead of hiring this advisor or, or aligning with this advisor to be a marketer, you're getting this younger advisor to start working with your client's children, the 35-year-old son of a wealthy client working with a 30-year-old financial advisor who's aligned with a high-level wealth management team. It's one at a time. And instead of looking for an advisor who can cold call for you, you're looking for a professional who you can develop to work with your clients as you retire. And you're going to basically transition your business, sell your business to this young generation. But they need to have the work ethic. They need to have the integrity. They need to have you know, the brains to do the job, the ability, the skills, the from an emotional, you know, connectivity to the professional aspects of being a wealth advisor. And they need, and the senior advisor and the succession planning advisor need to be on the same page. They need to be in agreement. And what we see happening is, you know, well, the senior advisor doesn't really want to retire like they say they're going to retire or they're not really haven't made up their mind yet. And yet they've changed their mind or the junior advisor comes along and thinks he should be the senior advisor before he or she is ready. I'm, you know, they're making all this money. I'm doing all the work kind of thing. So it's not easy, but that needs to be initiated immediately because if you have the wrong advisor there, you'll know that in a short period of time and you need to cut bait. You need to make a change. Well, not easy is correct because it is a crowded and competitive world and everyone is looking to hire that young talent no matter where that advisor practices. But you made a very interesting point that I think I want to call out. Most advisors, when looking to recruit next-gen talent, 
are looking for someone that comes with a book of business, a significant book of business, so that that person can pay for themselves out of the gate, hit the ground running, add value right away. And while that's great, it sounds like, and I want to check this out, what you're telling me is, is that coming with a book of business is less important than finding the right person that the advisor can develop in their image. Absolutely. I've seen so many advisors, you know, get that advisor who has a book of business and it becomes a disaster. Yeah. You know, because they're they're doing it for the wrong reasons. I've had advisors come to me and said, I don't give a flip about my client's children because I'm going to be retired. I could care less. Well, that's not a real client centric approach because your clients want their children handled. Yes. They want them to get the proper advice. They don't want them to be scammed or make poor investment financial decisions. Okay, one last question, Matt Oxley. What does a day in the life of Matt Oxley look like? <laughs> well, that's a question. Well, we've got a great team here at the Oxley Institute, and I got to give kudos to the team because I've been able to delegate the majority of day-to-day operations to both Stephen Boswell and Kevin Nichols. They do a wonderful job. One handles our coaches. The other handles the social media. So I'm not required to be here at 7.30 every morning the way I used to be. But I'm in the office relatively early, you know, 8 to 8.30 when I'm not traveling. But the other part of me is when I'm traveling speaking. For instance, last week in Montreal, I was up there. Uh, I had a breakfast meeting with the chairman's producers of this firm. And then I gave a keynote speech. And that, you know, you travel to get up there, you do your presentation, you travel to get home. So there's two components to me is when I'm in the office, I'm typically writing and doing research and talking on the phone with, you know, industry people such as yourself, Mindy. And then when I'm traveling, I'm reading, I'm educating myself, but I'm out there speaking and working in, you know, hands on sleeves rolled up in the industry. Yeah. Sounds like you've built something extraordinary and come a long way from that guy 30 years ago. And the industry certainly has benefited from your expertise and wisdom. And I'm really grateful for your sharing it with me today. And we thank you. My pleasure. Happy to do it. As Matt shared, elite advisors are already outstanding at their craft, but they differentiate themselves by developing a strong emotional connection with their clients and have mastered the art of selling in a fiduciary world. Thank you for joining us on our final episode of the year. We'll be back in January of 2020 with our highlight show featuring the top commentary from 2019, plus a few extra surprises, and I hope you'll tune in. Until then, I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for more valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to this series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. Thank you for listening. I also want to thank Advisor Hub for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Independence.